congratulations, Marvin. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's okay. Yeah, no. now we, we just had a quick word before you came in, and I was saying that I'm almost as pleased as if I was a mayor. Oh, right. <laughs> that you're okay. a mayor, you know. Uh, but is it a real mind bender for you? Um, well, the, 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 the hardest thing to get used to is actually recognisability. Really? Yeah. Anonymity is no longer, I have none of it. Okay, so you can't go to Tesco's anymore without well, people going... Well, I do going, go to Tesco. Yeah, but without people going, hey, it's the mayor. Yeah, I was in the line the other day and um, my boy's got hay fever. You know, you get that 11, that 12 midnight decision to make. Do you actually get up, get dressed and go and buy him some cough sweets? So I had to do that. But I was in the queue at the self-service checkout and... Uh, someone said to me, excuse me, can I ask you a silly question? Are you Marvin Reese? <laughs> I said, yeah. And another guy walked past me, didn't say anything, but he just held up his fist, gave me a fist bump as he walked past. Oh, really cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. No, no, he didn't punch me. <laughs> no, 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 Maybe no, we're talking like that, you know, the, the fist bump. So um, uh, were you in your pyjamas? No, no, tracksuit <laughs> track bottoms and a hoodie or a T-shirt. Okay, well, that's cool. That's cool. So, listen, we're not here to talk about what you wear in bed. Much right. as I'd like to. We're also <laughs> accompanied by the newly elected South Mead councillor, Helen. Hi, Hi, Helen Godwin. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. On Thank your you. position. Was it unexpected or are you pleased? Um, really pleased. It was unexpected in that I made the decision to stand this time quite late on. Yeah. So I was only the candidate for a couple of months. Um, but you smashed it. We did all right. Yeah, yeah we did all right. Yeah, it was good. Right. It was you a big did all right. No, you did. <laughs> big all, team effort. All around, big it team was, effort. It was yeah. great. Well done. That's great. Now, Marvin, last time we had you in on The Word, we were it was specifically talk about the future of Carnival. Uh, we talked about many subjects, which was fantastic. Uh, and we were sort of joking about the first thing you, you would do if you were elected, which was, you, do you remember what you said the first thing you would do? I was to get rid of the bike rack. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you remember I'm going to go back this afternoon. Yeah. Actually, what, the, what I have done is, Green Capital invoices, and that's my policy leads for housing and a few other things, but must be returned to the bike rack. Yeah, no, I think but this right. is incredible. The things that you have done, I mean, I wanted to ask you the first things that you're going to address, but you've addressed so much already. You've made the, you know, the transparency of the Green Capital financing was something that was a huge topic. You've done that in such a short time. I mean, how long ago were you inaugurated? Was it a month? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're doing pretty good. Um, you've ported charges on the residential um, parking zones. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 No price increases. Blue badge. Exemptions from prosecutions using RPZs. Okay, yeah. and what, where will this go from the future? Are you going to be still um, installing the new um, RPZs that were announced, or are they all? No, we're freezing. We're freezing right. RPZ rollout unless unless areas are explicitly, and that means to be explicitly asking for them. But what the next step is that my my cabinet lead for transport, uh, Mark Bradshaw. Um, is, work, uh, is working with council officers to, to design the tools by which all of our elected members will have the chance to talk to communities, businesses, schools about how parking can be made to work for them in their communities so that what people get at the end of that process will be the result of proper engagement with the communities under the leadership of locally elected members. On that note, we have been talking to our listeners and they're very excited about you coming in again today. So as we did with George Ferkins and we're in the studio, we asked the listeners to write in um, with some questions for you, Marvin, if that's okay. Helen, we'll come back to you shortly, don't worry. If you want to interrupt at any point, please feel <laughs> Helen free. Helen can interrupt. <laughs> she can hold her ground, I like that. I, I like that. Okay, good. So we're going to start off with a question that actually came from a number 
of listeners. Um, we're talking about, you know, a handful of people all wanting to know the same thing. Uh, Amy Goff and Jodie Schofield ask, yes, I'd like to ask Marvin why £100,000 of public money was spent facilitating a small 15 bunch of uh, marchers. The EDL through was marching through the city on Saturday with police shutting down the whole of Park Street and closing College Green to the public. Uh, people were watching him do Nazi salutes and other violent um, um, signs, which we won't go into, but it wasn't a, a very peaceful process. Um, we, they, and Amy Goff asks what he thinks about the EDL marching in Bristol on the weekend and if he can work with other organisations to stop the EDL coming to Bristol again. Big question. Uh, I think the £100,000 is not just about protecting those people who are out, you know, standing up, you know, advancing the causes of the EDL or whatever they do. And there were fewer than 20 of them. It was about protecting the city. Yeah. and keeping the, the streets of the safe free for people to walk around free of violence. I think we'd have, we'd have, you know, to have a protest like that that wasn't policed and policed properly with people walking around past it up and down Park Street would have been very intimidating for people. So we, you've, you've got to do that. I think, too, you know, we live in a country where people can, you know, have the opportunity as long as they're acting within the, within the law, they can, they can make their points. And as distasteful as I, I find their messages... Um, and as, as and not even just distasteful, I, I think they're playing wrong in their analysis on why the world isn't working properly for, for the most, you know, for, for, for people. Um, you know, we've got to create space to, to have those voice until they are uh, breaking the law. But the great thing about it as well on Saturday was that were all the counter-marchers yeah. that, that wanted to go there to show them that they weren't welcome. And I think, I mean, we were actually, me and my daughter were on Queen's Road seeing some of them gather on Saturday morning and it was quite intimidating because you know these people hold views that are so far removed from what's acceptable that you know it's you we have to police it but the best thing that happened was that I think many more people came out and said a lot of people want to know is how come just a small group of 15 can uh, are allowed to sort of do something like that is there a kind of a limit on how it works like you know if if me and my mate said right I want to do a march there's two of us would that be acceptable yeah, well, I suppose you wouldn't need as much policing if there were two of you. Probably, can't be doing with just someone being rude to you. Yeah. Um, but um, w- I mean, I think they anticipated that there potentially could have been more people, so they had to have a proper, uh, uh, you know, a proper um, a program of action and containment being put sure. in place, and that's going to be expensive. I mean, yeah, because I, I, I would prefer, and um, I. The question is, do you give them the fuel? I could have even come out and made a statement saying, you're not welcome here. But then again, when you do that, do you give them the fuel of the publicity that they desire? For some people, their actions are merely there to stoke up an adversarial response, right? So if people go and fight them, that's one of the things they want. Um, And when people get heads up about them being there, again, they can say, well, look at that, we've come here, the political establishment, whatever they mean by that, is coming out against us. So you're caught in a real bind as how to do with these. Sometimes you just want to let them blow off their steam and go about their business because they're not there to be converted. They're there to make a point. Well, it's a hot topic. We unfortunately don't have time to carry on with that right now. We've got a few more questions. Maxine Williams um, wants to know, she wants to ask you about the 20-mile zones that hardly anyone, apparently she says, including the police, follow. Uh, Some of them are completely pointless, she says. The police admit that it will be the next generation who sticks to them, so why have them at all? Well, like I said, this is one of the the other um, uh, programmes within our review of transport in Bristol that we're taking into account to talk to councillors about uh, art to identify roads where it's inappropriate 
or it's not really serving much public safety to have the 20 miles per hour and we'll do that i think a lot of people the general consensus is that um you know around schools narrow residential streets outside care homes people can see the the, the sense of them being there yeah but i think that it's um i think there's just imposed across some of the streets that they've been imposed across that people are not happy and it doesn't make sense. I think there's been a secondary impact as well that we perhaps didn't anticipate that some people who have to get around the city for work, our frontline health workers are also being um, hampered by it. And like you said, I mean, a few, few people are obeying it. We agree, like I said, in certain areas it makes sense, but just rolled out across Bristol in the way it was done, um, it that hasn't made sense. And I think also this question of the way it was done matters. If people feel involved in coming up with the uh, the changes that make to Bristol, they're more likely to buy into them and support them rather than if they feel that they're being done too. Great, lovely, thank you. Now we have one more question from Simon Strange. Um, ask Marvin what he plans to do about traffic congestion and pollution. Gosh. Come on, you've got to solve all our problems. <laughs> I know, wait there, let me just get this piece of paper out of my back yeah, pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, congestion is Bristol's is bone. In fact, I've actually just been having a conversation with someone from national government about whether they can provide us with a very, very significant amount of funding that could unlock our train network in Bristol. We have to have the alternative. So we have this fantastic urban rail network in Bristol with lots of urban train stations that aren't, a number of them are closed and the rail network needs to be electrified. Um, but we can't, we're not going to tackle uh, our congestion problem through a stick and mend approach. We have to have a fundamental, you know, alternative offer to the use of cars. I think our now rail networks could be at the, part, the heart of that. And then you hopefully you end up with the virtuous circles. When people have an alternative to cars, it makes the road exactly. safe. They're more sequel, feel, more people feel able to cycle. Yes. We, incru- we improve air quality. Yeah. The whole, the whole. It uh, all but, comes uh, to the other. I, but I, I'm thinking our rail could be, yeah. really be very helpful for that. that I, I'm so pleased to hear that because, you know, it was such a fundamental part of our transport system and, the, and we're not using it. And, uh, and until we give our, our people something to use instead of cars, then they're obviously going to keep using it. So, yeah, we totally understand that. Um, we've got a couple more questions. Uh, one more, actually, from Scott Murray. Could you please ask Marvin if he has any plans to encourage local small independent businesses? And if so, what sort of thing is he considering? Oh, I've just got off the phone two days ago asking one of our councillors if actually they would be our small business champion for Bristol. And champion is not a cheap word. Champion is... Um, I was talking to someone connected with business in Bristol and he came up with a fantastic line. He said, we would pay for the phone number of someone who could just sort stuff out for small business. And I'm thinking, actually, if we identified a councillor who could be that person who could sort things out for small business, organise them, make sure that their voices are heard when we're looking at parking programmes, transport programmes, make sure small small business voices are heard when we're developing our work experience and our apprenticeship programmes, making sure that we're putting the infrastructure in place that allow them to benefit from that when tranches of money come down uh, for inward investment from national bodies, from European bodies, that there is someone to champion the small businesses that are not necessarily have the the space, the time to be able to put grant applications together and so forth so that they don't miss out. So um, I think much of what we need to do is about leadership. What we don't want to do is get in the position where we're making announcements and there's no one there to pick it up and make sure it actually happens. So for me, it's about putting a team in place. That person, we all will be revealed. <laughs> no, that person, I'm going to profile them and announce them in the next couple of weeks, but I just need to have a couple more conversations within the, within the group. So that's fantastic. So you've done a lot in a short pace of time. Um, I've asked you, you know, what was going to be your first thing on your agenda in a joking manner. What was the first thing that for you was of the utmost importance to address? Putting a cabinet in place. Right. Again, um, it comes down to the question of um, if you just make announcements, right, 
and there's no one to own those announcements, to pick them up, to, to drive them through, then there's much more danger of them being watered down or being lost. So by putting a cabinet in place, um, in the first instance, of what we begin to do is identify clear leads. Paul Smith is our lead on housing. He has just gone out and started to do housing. He's talking yeah. to people who are talking about bringing hundreds of millions of pounds to Bristol. He's been, uh, uh, you know, putting a map together of all the, the land sites in Bristol. Mark Bradshaw has now gone out and started to do transport. You know, Fee Hans has gone out and started to do health. Uh, Claire Hiscott has gone out and started to do education. And then we have our cabinet leads looking at the council directorates as well. But like I said, beyond that, the cabinet is not the be-all and end-all of Bristol politics. What we really want to do is um, have other councillors picking up on cross-cutting issues, on issues that, uh, that, 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 that some, some clear, identified political leadership, some rallying points um, could really be delivered. And like Helen, I mean, I've, I've been talking to Helen about um, doing, a, you know, how we can do a piece of work that's in line with her expertise about cultural change within the council, how we can make sure it's a fantastic place to work so we reduce absenteeism, make it a place where people's careers don't come to a halt but are fantastic platforms for their future lives. That's a huge piece of work. 9,000 employees and, uh, you know, in Herling could be a person that's really on the forefront of that.